when you're on a rooftop, you know that you have to be very present. You can't be distracted by something. You can't think about the tests you have or the assignments you have due. You need to just like look at your feet, take one step after the next. Don't fall off the roof. Don't fall off the roof. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm chatting with Chris Haitha. Chris is a digital artist and photographer with over 50,000 Instagram followers whose work focuses on architecture and the built environment. He's also one of the first Philly artists to get in on the NFT craze, and his photos sell for thousands of dollars on the internet. The story of artist Chris Haitha is now on Philly Who. My name is Chris Haitha. I am a architecture graduate and digital artist and photographer here in Philadelphia. Before he was in Philadelphia, however, Chris grew up just outside of the city in Phoenixville. It was a very quaint little town growing up in Phoenixville. I love being able to walk anywhere, the downtown strip of Phoenixville. It's come a long way since I was growing up, uh, but it's always just been a cute little town. There was a candy shop, this lady, Frida, maybe a total of a block from my house. So growing up, I mean, my siblings would walk down there and you could get a hundred gummy bears for a dollar. And she had all the candy laid out. So you go in with a dollar, you feel like a, a very wealthy man. Yeah. And um, <laughs> that that's honestly the biggest thing that sticks out from my childhood. She was also a painter, this lady Frida. She's like the neighborhood grandma, lovely lady. While Chris's roots are in Phoenixville, he comes from a family that is no stranger to adventure abroad. I come from a very musical family. My parents toured Europe in a 70s Christian rock band. There's pictures of my dad with a guitar in like leopard print vests. <laughs> uh, and that I don't know my parents from that time, obviously, well, well before I was born, but um, I can only imagine what that was like. And they like traveled around in a van and, and then that lifestyle <laughs> transferred to the kids a little bit. Many stories of um, my parents raising four kids and having like a newborn under a piano as my dad was playing in like a hotel lobby. When he was about 14, Chris learned to play a number of instruments himself. I play like hand percussion, like djembe and cajon is like a drum you like yeah. sit on. Um, probably the easiest thing to play in a band, like you don't have to read music or look at lyrics you're yeah. just kind of drumming away amazing um but yeah we uh as a family band toured europe and they have some connections there from the previous musical escapades um so yeah meeting a lot of local people we would essentially like play at like a neighborhood bar in like belgium in exchange for staying with the owner of that bar <laughs> and then they would like cook us an authentic meal Although Chris started his creative career as a musician, by the time he was a teenager, he found himself drawn more to the visual arts. It started in high school, really, drawing and sketching, and I decided I wanted to go into architecture pretty early on, like freshman year. I would draw floor plans and elevations and, and just like design houses. Wow. So weird kid. And, and what, so you're drawing floor plans in high school. What compels you about that? 
Yeah, so it really stemmed from my dad and his brother. Uh, my dad renovates properties in Phoenixville. The town used to be in shambles, so you could buy a house for $15,000, just deteriorating, and he would bring them back to their former glory. So my whole childhood, uh, I started off pretty frugal and like not really well off. Like we didn't have cable TV, like our house was old. And then just slowly as their property business did better, my parents like slowly renovated around our backyard. So my whole childhood, I was seeing ideas come to reality. Mm -hmm. I saw my dad and his brother, who's an architect, my uncle Bob, you know, sitting down outside drawing, you know, this vision of having a pool and a pool house. And what if there's an addition above the garage that's a music loft and, wow. and all these ideas. And then to see those come to reality was really inspiring. Chris was also inspired by adventure. And the summer after he graduated high school, he embarked on one of his own. My friend and I, a good friend from high school, Jake Kazme and I would play ping pong all the time. Um, and we just, it's a great friendship because we escalate and it starts with like, oh yeah, biking's kind of cool. We could bike down the Schuylkill River Trail from Phoenixville to Philly. It's like 60 miles there and back. Like, wow, imagine biking to Philly. And it's like, what if we you know, go a little further. Like, what if we just bike to Florida? So we just were like joking around about it. And we would just say like, yeah, we're going to bike to Florida for sure, man. And then it slowly transitioned to like, how do we do this? Oh, let's take this route. Oh, let's uh, buy these panniers so we can put food in our bikes. How much food do we need to bring? A and then before we knew it, we were like packed and ready to bike to Florida. We had no idea what happened. Guess we're going to do we're it. Like, wait, are we, are we going to do this? Yeah. <laughs> And then it's, it was a crazy experience to one, just leave and realize like, oh yeah, we're doing this. Um, the very first day we bike out 60 miles, like our first time, like doing an adventure like this, all very new and overwhelming. And we wake up the next morning, we slept in some tree lined area off the side of the road. It's like 4am summertime. So we're trying to beat the heat, get out really early. And I wheel my bike down and I have a flat tire. Like, okay, I've never changed a flat tire <laughs> on a bike in my life. Probably should have learned how to do that before I left, but I'm a dumb kid. So we pull up to this Wawa, sit out back, and I have a spare tube. I like put the tube in and I just can't get my bike tire onto the wheel. It's like too tight. And I try everything. I'm Googling it. And then I'm looking for bike shops. It's a Sunday, so no bike shop or wow. bike shops are open. I think maybe the tube's the wrong size. I borrow Jake's bike and I bike to a nearby Kmart like two miles away. Luckily, they're open like 24-7. Yeah. Get two more tubes, bike back. They don't work. I think I biked to Kmart one more time to try to get something wow. else, biked back. At the end of the day, we woke up at 4 a.m. and here we were day two sitting at Wawa, I think for like eight hours. <laughs> like we just couldn't go. Uh, there was a point where Jake just got mad. <laughs> this was kind of mean of him, but it worked out. And he just started biking. And I was like, dang. I gotta, <laughs> he just left. I got to get moving. So I just took a knife and I cut the wall of the tire and I could get the tire back on. And then I didn't have any problems. It just worked. Like hmm. that was the solution I needed. Besides equipment issues, Chris and his friend faced other challenges on the road. There were campsites that like turned us down and we had to sleep huh. just like on the street no because way. they didn't let us in because we were 17. I feel like it's all the more reason to let a young kid have some shelter. And but. so how long did it take you to get to Florida and where was your end destination? It was two weeks, wow. a thousand miles, and we were kind of lame and we just called it 
at the start of Florida. We oh. passed the Florida sign and we got a train from Jacksonville, Florida. And it was like a 16 hour train ride. Um, it felt longer than the bike ride. After biking to Florida, Chris started school as an architecture student at Drexel University. The first day I got to Drexel, checking into my dorm, my parents drive away, and I had my bike, and I was like, I can go anywhere. So I had that same bike in the city of Philadelphia, and right away, just like, didn't even do the freshman orientation stuff. I just biked into Center City, just explored. Um, I had never been alone in the city. I'd been to Philly a few times, driving around with my parents, you know, maybe stay in a hotel for a special event. But now being alone, I can go wherever I want. And I I didn't know what it was like on the Delaware River waterfront or in Old City or South Philly or like going up to the stadiums, what's like around the stadiums. I mean, just confirmed what I already knew that these high rises were like crazy, incredible to me. Like, how do we build things this big? Or like the Ben Franklin Bridge, like it was built, I don't know, a hundred years ago. How do they do that without computers? Like the accuracy (laughs) to build the two towers, how do you measure in the river that has a current and like you're trying to pour concrete and it's it's like pushing you downstream? It just like blows my mind. I don't understand it. Chris was absolutely fascinated with Philadelphia's architecture. That, combined with his penchant for adventure, led him to take his urban exploration to new heights. I had a couple good friends and we would go out any like weeknight, weekend, and just try to get to the tops of buildings. We'd like try to walk behind someone through a lobby and like go into the (laughs) elevator. And it was just a process of discovery and problem solving. And I can't even express how satisfying it is to look up at the top of a building, think, I want to be up there at the pinnacle. One day I was walking home from work and I just, there's a building that I've always looked at, always just thought about how cool it'd be because there's this pointy roof and I could get like right on top of the pointy roof. And I just had a feeling, I was like, huh, maybe I'll try it. I walk in and the guy at the desk just doesn't say anything. So I was like, all right, go up the elevator. And then um, the stair door is just open. I wander around, there's a door that has like a bunch of intimidating text, like don't enter, no trespassing, a camera pointing at it. And I was like, okay, call it quits. That's probably it. And then I just turned left at that corridor instead of right towards that door. There was a ladder, climb up the ladder. And then it was this big, heavy hatch that opened and I was just out there. You're Um, on the roof. Yeah, and then (laughs) this was very, very funny. It was this pointy roof, like a gabled roof. And I wanted to get out to the end of it. So I had to shimmy, like straddling the roof. And there was a a rooftop bar restaurant to my right. And I was looking and I could see people dining. I could see people out (laughs) on this balcony. And I was just in the dead of night, like one scoot after the next. (laughs) Did anybody notice you? I don't think so. I kept looking over to make sure no one was causing a spectacle over there. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I got down and no one one knew better. It's funny going through the lobby though, the whole insides of my legs were covered in like black soot from the roof. My hands were black. My face was probably like a little bit black from touching my face. And I just walk out of the lobby like, yeah, that was a crazy meeting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, according to Chris, he actually was successful at making it to the top of buildings only 10% of the time. But he says that all of his failed attempts were well worth it for that 10%. I love just being an observer. Even on street level in a park, yeah. I love to people watch, just watch the activity of the city. It's even cooler from up there to just see all the cars, see the traffic down below, and just, it's a weird feeling um, in the moment. That's probably the main draw of like adrenaline when you're on a rooftop 
you know that you have to be very present. You can't be distracted by something. You can't think about the tests you have or the assignments you have due. Uh, you need to just like look at your feet, take one step after the next. Mm. Don't fall off the roof. Don't fall off the roof. Um, so that gets you very much in the present moment. It's worth noting that what Chris was doing was usually illegal and always dangerous. And we are not encouraging you to do this yourself. But eventually, this illegal hobby ended up being more beneficial than just the cool views it provided. It ended up leading him to discover another hobby, one that involved a lot less danger. I climbed a building again with this good friend, Jake. <laughs> he, he went to school at Philly U. So now we were both in the city and we were like, yo, let's just like go out at 2 a.m. and like see what we can climb. So we climb a construction site in the city, get on top of the crane. And it's just this like crazy escalation from our like childhood, like kicking around climbing trees to now in the big city on top of a high rise construction site. Um, I took some photos on my phone and they were garbage, just noisy, and yeah. you couldn't even tell what was going on. So that led to research into how to take photos at night, um, learning about long exposures. I downloaded a long exposure app on my phone, messed around with it. Then I asked my brother if I could borrow his camera, started to learn a little bit. It was a really crappy Sony, early, early Sony camera. And uh, yeah, I just slowly kind of fell in love with it. For a while, Chris stuck to the same routine. He would climb roofs or find abandoned buildings to explore with his camera in tow. But eventually, he realized he couldn't keep taking the same risks he had taken while scaling roofs. My love for urban exploring got me into photography, but then photography kind of took over. Mm. I had this thought that I had to be in a cool location to take a cool photo. I need to get into this abandoned factory, and then the photo takes itself. And as I got more professional, got a job, got more serious about school, I started doing the illegal stuff less and less. And instead of finding illegal but really cool places to take his photos, Chris learned how to make his photos look really interesting and exotic, even when they were taken from places anybody could access. The change really came with Photoshop. I started learning it in high school, a little bit here and there. And then in architecture school, we use it as a tool a lot. And I didn't really like just photography because I felt like I needed to like add something more to it. Like it's almost too just documentation. Like if you take a picture of a building, someone else designed that building. Mm -hmm. So one, getting into these cool locations was a way of making it interesting because they're lesser seen perspectives. But with Photoshop, I realized I could transform what I'm seeing, add something of myself, add my own perspective into it to make it something unique and different. So I started off on, had a couple different like phases in my interest in photography, but atmosphere and haze has always been something I've loved. So I started just Photoshopping fog into urban environments, into city streets as a way of simplifying all of the busyness and distractions of traffic lights, cars, street signs, all of this stuff. Just let that all blend away into like a milky sea of blue mm. fog and then highlight a traffic light or a lone person on a bench or whatever it is. I found it was a way to show my perspective. Like I can direct a viewer's attention and share an interesting like way of viewing the urban environment that I saw it as. Like I would see something really interesting and then Photoshop and digital editing, digital art allowed me the possibility of like highlighting that and portraying that. At what point did you start calling yourself an artist? 
probably wasn't until like three or four years into photography. And I think a lot of artists probably struggle with that where like imposter syndrome almost, and you feel like you have to get to a certain level or have certain accolades to call yourself an artist. For me, it was once I started feeling some intention behind my work, I felt like for the first three years photographing, I was like a chicken with my head cut off, just like taking pictures and like, I had no idea what I was doing. Just going through the motions with no intention. I didn't know what story I was telling. I didn't know what the goal was. I was just kind of copying what I saw people doing on Instagram and other places. And yeah, it took three years to get past that. Um, from architecture school, we were always questioned about our decisions. Architecture too in the early years can be kind of ambiguous. There's no right and wrong don't really know what to do. So it's all about making a decision and justifying it. But the worst thing is to do something and say, because it looked cool or mm. because I wanted to, that's not it. You're not going to make it in architecture school with that mindset. So I definitely applied that to photography, questioning each decision. Why am I adding fog? It was to simplify, to draw focus to something else. So even though it's this vague kind of open-ended visual process, I think there's a lot of ways that you can organize it and make yeah. sense of it and justify your decisions. Yeah. So it definitely is a process to get intention in your work. All of this, the intention, his fascination with urban aesthetics, the love for adventure, and the architect's mindset combined to make Chris's art feel sort of dreamlike. Like, for example, there's one image on his Instagram feed that's taken near the Basilica in Center City. There's only one person in the whole image. A woman dressed in white in the foreground, waiting to cross a street that it's entirely void of people. Cars, trash, you know, the usual street kind of things. In the background, just to her right, the Basilica looms, appearing huge and almost mythical. The entire image is bathed in this foggy orange light that gives it an otherworldly quality. I like to think of it as like surrealism. Although when I look at surrealist paintings, it's not so far as, uh, you know, melting clocks. Yeah. But I love this feeling where it's like something's not right, but you can't quite put your finger on it. Uh, whether that's from the, the fog that's just a little bit too thick or cleaning up all the trash and, and like removing all the distractions to create a very like intentional, minimal scene that just feels like something's off. It's almost eerie, but just like that's the best way I could describe it. Some inspirations, uh, a big one is Edward Hopper, an American painter, and he captures space and composition and like interpersonal relationships in really interesting ways. Um, so if you look at his work, you might be able to see some similarities. Edward Hopper, by the way, is the artist behind the famous painting Nighthawks, which shows four people sitting in an urban diner late at night as viewed from the outside through the diner window. It has a dreamlike quality similar to that Chris applies to his own work over the next few years as he continued to take photos and grow his following on Instagram. When 2020 hit, however, he was feeling what a lot of us were feeling at the time. I was getting a little bit burnt out on individual photos of the city and, you know, I was feeling cooped up. I just wanted to get out. I just wanted to see the world. I was so excited. I was at a, a desk job at an architecture firm that was just getting more and more boring by the day, feeling uninspired there, ready to quit, ready to just get out of here. And I just decided to start exploring around Philadelphia. I knew I couldn't really go anywhere else. 
So I just started going out to neighborhoods I've never seen before. I would run every day that summer. And I just started running down streets I've never ran before. Every run was a different route. Just looking at buildings, looking at anything, just, just exploring the world with an open mind. Strawberry Mansion was one of those neighborhoods that he explored extensively, and he was particularly inspired by the beauty and history of the area. So before I knew any of the history, it was already pretty evident that this place told a very interesting story. There were all these very stately, very beautiful homes in total decay, forgotten, and you could also see this transition of the historic details, these craftsmen that put a ton of work and effort and love into these buildings, and then the current condition of you know people not being able to go forward to fix this crazy curved window, and they just replace it with like a weirdly small whatever they could afford window, and then they like put cinder blocks. But you know you can tell they didn't have any construction experience; they're just trying to make it work. And that like tension within a house of the, the difference in, in state between the builder and the current occupant and the current condition was really intriguing to mm. me. Started doing research, for one, the neighborhood is named because there was this restaurant that had really good strawberries and cream <laughs> and everyone would go there. And um, it was one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in Philly. There was a big Jewish population, a bunch of synagogues. And for whatever reason, that Jewish community just went further north. I, I forget where they landed, but slowly the neighborhood decayed and, and it's in its state now, which is one of the worst or, or most dangerous neighborhoods in Philadelphia, one of the most impoverished. I watched some documentaries on the school district there, one of the most dangerous schools in the country. After seeing the city in a new light, Chris was inspired to take his artwork to a new level. I really wanted to start diving into series and like creating a more meaningful body of work, mm. like almost using it as a way of analyzing and discovering. He decided that the subject of this series was going to be the row homes that he often saw on these adventures because they were a natural fit with his background and interests. So it's really a long history of growing up in a row home. So that was always a part of my life. My dad also really appreciates like quirky details and interesting architecture. So he would always paint like the molding of the Victorians, funky colors, mm. just to have some fun with it. So I feel like growing up, I would have those conversations of like my dad pointing to an interesting detail and we'd talk about it. And that definitely carried through to Philly in architecture. Luckily, all my architecture friends love buildings as much as I do. So walking around, we're all very observant, just like pointing out quirky details, weird oval-shaped windows, funky colored shutters, whatever it is, just something that makes a, a little row home pop. That's always been fascinating to me. I live in a row home now in West Philly, and I helped design and renovate it. It was abandoned, so it wasn't really like designing the exterior, just sure. laying out the interior. So to see the process of that home transformation, and it has some great historic details that we got to preserve. And I would always see new things. The crazy thing is, like, even in my hometown, Phoenixville, my parents even, who have been there 35 years, still see new little, you know, doodads or details on buildings. So I knew that there was this wealth of variety and character and interest in these row homes. And I had developed the visual abilities to isolate that and to celebrate that through the way that I, you know, formatted the project. So it like clicked one day and I just devoted all of my energy to making these row homes. 
Up until this point, Chris had mostly been selling his art as prints, which didn't really feel right for this particular project. Then he started to hear about another way to present and monetize his work. NFTs, non-fungible tokens, a great way for digital artists to make money. An NFT is a digital asset, so there's no physical counterpart necessarily. Sometimes they're sold alongside prints, but essentially it's digital ownership of a limited thing. It could be a photo. It could be just some interesting code that can do interesting things. But really, it comes down to being limited in nature. It gets back to roots of collectors, like rare Pokemon cards, baseball cards. Anything that's limited usually has some type of like cult following like that. A big hang-up for a lot of people is that it's just a digital asset and that you can right-click and save an image onto your computer. So what do you really own? And the argument to that is always like the Mona Lisa, you can take a photo of it. Yeah. That doesn't mean you own it. Um, and also just because it's only digital doesn't mean it doesn't exist. You know, like if you're the sole owner of it on the blockchain, usually Ethereum, it verifies that there's one copy. It's owned by this person and they can sell that. They can trade it. They can yeah. do whatever they want with it. By the time Chris was hearing about them, NFTs had started to grow in popularity, but he was still skeptical of their legitimacy. I got probably three or four friends and family that would DM me, message me and say like, hey, you should look at this. And I never, I, I looked into it, but I was like, not me. Like, what are these gas fees? Like, I don't know that this is right for me. Um, it wasn't until a friend in Philly of mine sold an image for $6,000 as an NFT that it like hit close enough to home for me to realize that this is something to pursue. So I got on Twitter. I started just watching and learning about all these other artists that are releasing one-of-one one NFTs, which are just like standalone images or collections, which are your body of work, you know, a series of images that tell a story. So I started seeing these collections. And also there's been this thing in my mind for probably a year or two. So everything kind of came together. And I realized like, now's the time. Like I have the idea. I've been wanting to do this, you know, more intentional series for a long time. So that's the moment I knew. So Chris took this row home project, the idea that he had to do a photographic series of Philly row homes, and decided he would release it as a collection of NFTs. But even though he had done his research on the digital assets, they were still a brand new concept for him. It was such a stressful time because I had no idea what would happen. It was hard to get in my mind, like, who's going to buy these? That's why I didn't do it in the first place. Like, who cares enough about me or my art to buy this NFT? Like, I feel like it has to be these crypto native people that bought Ethereum in 2015 or something. Right. I started sharing process and progress on Twitter and like gauging support. And right away, people were pretty into it. And I, I used their feedback too. I kind of like iterated on the format and the style. In the beginning, it was much more realistic, less photoshopped. And then I like leaned heavier into my Photoshop background because it was a way to set it apart a little mm. bit. So I was sharing progress and I knew people were interested. And then like a week before the launch, when I had everything together, I had 30 row homes to list on a platform called OpenSea, one of the main NFT marketplaces now. And I created this video advertisement thing that I was super excited about. I announced the drop date to it. And I remember I was at the gym with a friend actually, and I just had posted it. 
And that whole hour, the first hour, it was like crawling along, like just a couple likes, couple retweets. I'm like, oh no. And I was like, I don't think anyone cares about this, you know? And that's a hard thing to come to the realization of as an artist, having just spent like two weeks of my life dedicated to this. And then it was really just like a couple big retweets, something I've learned about Twitter. It's like, you just need one retweet <laughs> to get yeah. things rolling. And then the next person, the next person, and all of a sudden it like blew up, got my confidence back and then released it. And it sold out in like a minute. Wow. Um, so that was a, a minute. Yeah. Yeah. There <laughs> were people like waiting on their computers, refreshing the browser for one o'clock or whenever I dropped it. Wow. Um, and there were several people for each post on Twitter that was like, yo, I got a row home. There were like five comments that said they missed out. They tried and their transaction didn't process. What does that feel like for you? It was the most overwhelming day of my life, for sure, that first one, because Twitter's blowing up, everyone's posting the homes, and, and like there's all these messages. There was one person that like called me out for changing. I changed something about the drop for some reason, and like that was giving me a lot of stress. I, literally, by the end of the day, my eyes were blurry. I couldn't even look at my phone. I tried to take a nap like 3 o'clock. Very overwhelming. Yeah. Um, then the next day, yeah, just like, did that really happen? As more people bought his work, Chris began to realize just how valuable NFTs could be to him as a young artist. I started talking to these collectors and asking them about, like, why, and they would tell me either they just believe in the project, they admire me as an artist, or they're buying it because sometimes people just speculate that an artist will be bigger in the future, mm. you know, and if NFTs catch on, maybe buying one of these early NFTs could be really valuable one day. Also, I found out really quick about the marketplace of NFTs, buying and reselling. This was totally new in my art, seeing other people make money on my art. You know, prior to this, I've sold prints and I've made just a tiny amount of money, not even barely enough to support myself on my art. And then all of a sudden, people are buying them from me and reselling them for upwards of like $50,000. And I'm just blown away by that. Uh, but that painted a clear picture of like why you would invest for, you know, the speculative right. market trying to make some money. Right. What does that feel like when you see something that you made get sold for that much money? Uh, overwhelming. Prior to that, you know, I sold a image for a book cover for $600. That was like the pinnacle of what I could expect as a photographer, digital artist. And that's um, a tough, <laughs> low budget existence for sure. Um, so then all of a sudden to have images valued at much higher, um, it's just a shock, yeah. really. And then seeing other people make money on it, at first it was kind of weird because it's like, it's my art. Right. I, I, it's weird that that they're reselling it. But now I really, really love it because it's almost like having a board of advisors. There's all these people that have invested a good amount of money into me as an artist mm. that have a vested interest in seeing the project successful, seeing me successful, so I can run ideas by them. For example, Chris's first row home initially sold for the equivalent of around $738. Recently, it was resold for over $61,000 because his work has begun to grow in popularity and prestige. The original owner made a huge profit off of their original purchase, and as Chris puts more NFTs up for sale, he'll benefit from the increasing value of his previous works. This is a great thing about NFTs and why they've been such a revolution is it allows people to invest directly in artists. So wow. that could be 
uh, in musical artists too, you know how some people find a band and then they get mad when they blow up because they're like, <laughs> I was in this like way before. Now you can prove cool. that. <laughs> yeah. So, so now if that person buys an NFT to support this person's early album, if that's the Rolling Stones, I mean, that could be worth millions of dollars one day. So it's this way to directly support artists that you appreciate. This direct support allows artists like Chris to have a lot more financial and creative freedom. I just graduated architecture school in June, and I planned to get a job after the summer. So I didn't even have summers off in school. It's very rigorous, so I planned to take the summer, relax, worked hard. And then I would set up a job for September, maybe October. And it really took NFTs to kind of kick me out of that idea. The beginning of the summer was kind of a lull. I wasn't feeling very inspired. I was kind of burnt out from school. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wasn't really making much work. And, and that was my plan. I was like, okay, to get out of this, I'll apply to some jobs. I'll get a job, go the normal route. Yeah. And then NFTs gave me the freedom to just abandon that, be like, I, this is so fun. Yeah. Like I can just um, throw myself out there, create whatever I want do these series where I can explore my passion of finding interesting and unique architecture. So now, after scaling buildings, learning photography, making digital art, and releasing his NFT series, Chris has made the transition from full-time architect to full-time artist. I'm going all in on these series because it was something I wanted to do before NFTs. Now, NFTs are a way of sharing that series and selling that series and supporting myself. The scary thing about the decision is, is the long-term plan. If I'm at a firm, it's very easy to look at your higher-ups, and if you want to be them, it's a clear path. Stay there, work hard, make these connections, level up, become a partner. It's, it's kind of cut and dry, and that takes some of the excitement out of it, but it's a safe and reliable future. Art and NFTs in particular are super volatile. The whole industry, the you know, bubble could burst, yeah. and it's gone. And I have no idea where this will take me in a year, in two years, five years. But the most helpful thing for me is I've just looked back on the past six years of making art and the very fun and interesting opportunities that have come from it. Mm -hmm. And the series is just a way of me like understanding and exploring the built environment, something I'm really passionate about, finding these quirky row homes, you know, and in the future I have other plans to just continue exploring architecture. I could bring this project to other cities so it definitely set a trajectory for my life that I'm very excited about. What would you say is the biggest challenge facing Philadelphia today? I had a conversation recently with another architecture grad from Drexel working on infill projects where row homes have been demolished. There's a clear link to my project, of course, which mm -hmm. is what started the conversation. But his worry is that if we leave this redevelopment to developers, Oftentimes we get these generic boxes, cost savings, like, and they have no soul. Just comparing one of these historic row homes to a new construction, like cheap wood thing. I mean, these new buildings that are being built are going to rot away before a 120-year-old row home ever right. shows any signs of decay. So we're not building for the future. We're not celebrating this unique history. So his whole project, which I definitely agree with, is to try to get the designers and the dreamers of Philadelphia to propose new ideas of how we redevelop. What's the density we need? What materials should we use? How can we create community? How many open spaces and parks do we need? 
because that's the like urban fabric of Philadelphia. That's how we all live our day-to-day -day lives. And if we get that right, I think we can set the city up for success. Yeah. Um, as part of the project for the final drop, we want to do an auction for the Philadelphia Preservation Alliance. And their mission is to preserve this historic character that I've really fallen in love with. So to me, it was a match made in heaven. And I'm happy to support uh, maintaining this historic character, you know, providing funds to uh, stop developers that want to tear down a historic hmm. building. What would you say is a common misconception about you? <laughs> One early on was that I was a building. Not, not that I was a building, but I didn't share my identity. So oh. the people I met, some thought that I was like an older, more experienced, like professional. So that was kind of a fun time where there were plenty of misconceptions of me because I didn't share anything about who I was. I actually love the ambiguity. I love that sometimes people can't even tell if you're a girl or a guy or your race or anything about you. You're just your art. What excites you most about Philadelphia today? Um, this brings me back a little bit to my architectural thesis. I studied the history of downtown Philadelphia. Ed Bacon, Kevin Bacon's dad, is a big urban planner that laid the groundwork for a lot of what Philadelphia has become. They did something called the Better Philadelphia Exhibit in, I think, the 50s that was all about just being visionaries and dreamers. They built these big models that had like turntables to show the old and they flipped it. This wow. is the new Philadelphia. So they just ignited this excitement about Philadelphia and what it could grow into. And I'm excited about the like 30th Street District development plans, Schuylkill Yards, all of these, oh, and the redesign of the parkway, mm. all of these big visionary ideas that are just starting to, to bud right now that could grow into defining the city for the next 30 years. So for me, I've studied these plans intensively and I've seen, like right now at Drexel, they're building a couple of the towers that are proposed. Hopefully they continue to build them. So to see this growth and this transformation and to have been a part of it since the beginning, since seeing these renderings and since they got people excited is something I'm, I'm definitely yeah. still excited about with awesome. Philadelphia. Finally, if you can get one message to every Philadelphian, that they could receive and ponder. It could be, you know, a text, a billboard, plane in the sky, whatever. One message, every Philadelphia, receive it, ponder it. What would you say? Just open your eyes. This applies everywhere too. Like find the unique things in your daily life. I feel like we get stuck in these day-to-day -day routines where your head's down, you're looking at your phone on your walk to work, and you feel like you've already seen all this before. But if you look up and you're observant, like, You'll notice so many things you've never, never seen before. And I think it's just a mindset thing, just being open to new experiences and, and looking out for something new. You know, look at things through a curious lens. Um, and I think you can find a lot of beauty and a lot of interest right in your backyard. You can check out Chris's work on his website, HythaCG, that's H-Y-T-H-A-C-G.com, or on social media under the same handle, HythaCG. Philly Who is a Q9 production. This episode was produced by me and Catherine Nails and was written by Catherine Nails with post-production by Jeremy Bishop and a very special thanks to Chris Hytha. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. See you next time.